0: For those of you who are new uh, to South Valley, in the month of August, we dedicate the entire month Sunday services to the issue of apologetics. Apologetics is a theological, it's a branch of Christian theology that deals with the defense of Christianity and its truth claims. Uh, and every month we, we focus in on this and it's been a tradition for quite some time. Today we have an incredible guest to kick it off this week, Dr. Gavin Ortland. Uh, I could say a number of things. He's an author, speaker, he's a senior pastor, he has an incredible YouTube channel called Truth Unites, which I encourage you to check out. There's a tremendous amount of resources there. But I wanted to introduce him with two things that I value probably above even all of those kind of resume building items. Is one, uh, Dr. Ortland is focused in the areas of Christian apologetic that matter most. Like, what are the questions being asked? What is it culture is currently wrestling with? Maybe so much to a degree that the culture isn't even asking those questions yet, but he is anticipating it based upon sound observation and giving a well-thought-out Christian response to these critical issues. And so he's on the front line in that area. And then two, maybe more, even more important than that, is uh, Dr. Ortland reflects the character of, of, of Christ in all that He does. And what I mean by that, it's not just the message that matters, it's the manner in which the message is delivered. So, it's one thing to, 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 to give a defense, but it's another thing to embody the characteristics of our Lord in that presentation. And so, He's not only a great mind giving a ready defense for the Christian faith, but also mirroring the love and characteristics of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, on that note… I didn't see you for a second. I was like, it was too dark and I got blind and my eyes are watering. I was like, he's gone, Dr. Gavin Orland.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. It's an honor to be worshiping with you today and to see how God is at work in this area as a pastor in another part of the state of California to come up and see the great things God is doing here. It just lifts up my heart. and. You know, every time I have a members meeting, I I share my thank yous to my church. I get choked up every time. Only a pastor knows those feelings of gratitude you have for the wonderful sheep of Christ. So uh, I'm just honored to be here. Now we've mentioned prime rib and we're getting toward lunchtime, so hopefully. You're going to hang with me a little bit because we're going to press into this topic that is a deep passion of mine, and we're going to get through a lot, but we'll move it quickly and uh, try to uh, keep you engaged here. And what I want to just share in terms of my heart passion for this issue is that I I deeply care about people who are struggling with doubts and sometimes it's even hard to acknowledge that in the church and to admit that some of us have been through those seasons of doubt others of us uh, will go through that or we have friends who are going through that it's a very common experience and one of the deepest passions in my heart is to be a friend and a help to people who are going through that Uh, so you don't feel like you're going through it alone you know Because that's a, a, a painful experience and I believe it's really common and it seems really common right now to be asking the deep questions like what are the real reasons we have to believe in Jesus? Does this stand up to scrutiny? There was a pastor named G. Campbell Morgan who uh, was raised in a very devout Christian home had a vibrant walk with Jesus Christ but when he went off to college he was struggling with doubts just like so many in our day do and he said it got so dark and so difficult that in the worst of it there came a moment when I was sure of nothing. I Wonder if you've ever felt something like that that feeling like the world is turned upside down and you're trying to make sense of things. That's really hard to go through, but a lot of Christians go through those seasons and a lot of people in our culture, it seems, are working through those difficult, deep questions. C.S. Lewis was a famous Christian apologist by the time he wrote this amazing book called A Grief Observed. And he wrote it with a pseudonym so that lots of people didn't believe he was the real author. He actually just wrote it a few years before he went home to heaven. And the reason people didn't believe that is because he was so honest and so raw about his feeling of God's hiddenness in the midst of his grief. And he was asking deep questions. You can read the ending of this passage on the slide. He said at one point, meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you're happy... So happy that you're tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate. When all other help is vain, what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become there are no lights in the windows boy each time i read that quote it kind of hits me afresh of just the honesty of that it feels kind of like the psalms of lament and as much as that uh might be a a kind of shocking quote you know that there's a lot in the scripture that feels kind of like that too where the psalmist is crying out saying lord where are you and it's okay to be honest, because Christians go through those deep times of doubt and struggle where God seems distant, and right now in our culture, there's a, a lot of uh, this word deconstruction has become kind of a buzzword, and uh, that means so many different things. But so many people are asking these deep questions, and I've been through that myself. Two seasons in my life of churning through those doubts and struggles. And, What I would love to do this morning with you all is hopefully this will help you and bless you and just be a a personal encouragement. You know, I really believe apologetics is for Christians, uh, not just so that we'll know how to better share our faith, though that's also true, but also as a nourishment, as a support, as a comfort, as a help, as a stabilization, but also that it might, uh, uh, for those of us who maybe have doubts, maybe this could be helpful for you this morning. So what we're gonna do is I wanna share with you what has helped me more than anything, and that is beauty. Now we wouldn't usually think of beauty as the the best tool that we have in doing apologetics, but this is actually an ancient, classical way of doing apologetics. And I would love for us to think about just two questions this morning quickly. Uh, Number one is, why is beauty important in apologetics? We'll just go quickly there. And then secondly, we'll give five examples of how beauty can point to God. So first, why is beauty important in apologetics? Now, I'm gonna reference J.R.R. Tolkien a couple of times and I'm gonna start by telling you one of the, my favorite scenes in the book, The Lord of the Rings. And I, my, my own congregation makes fun of me for quoting from The Lord of the Rings so much so it feels so good to do it without any guilt this morning. <laughs> you don't even know that it, I quoted the, something similar last Sunday, so I can just go for it here. But, Uh, And I won't get into too much detail if you haven't read the books, seen the movies, but there's a scene where a character wakes up from sleep having greatly suffered. And he sees a friend of his that he thought was dead and he realizes he's alive. And it says that the joy that fills him is so powerful that for several moments he's unable to even speak and then they break into a laughter and it says that the laughter fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys that he had ever known. I often think that's what heaven is gonna feel like, the first 10 seconds in heaven, the echo of all the joys you've ever known. And then he says, I feel like spring after winter and sun on the leaves and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I have ever heard, is everything sad going to come untrue? Now I love that scene and I'll stop there so I don't get emotional quoting Lord of the Rings. But (laughs) it's so beautiful to consider that feeling of unspeakable joy. And this is a great image for how the, the gospel should land upon our hearts. The gospel is enchanting, the gospel is enthralling. It's a message of infinite joy at the glory of God. It should just lift us up, you know, to even think about it. Sometimes in my life I've been working through doubts. Even just the thinking about the possibility fills your heart with joy. What if Jesus really rose from the dead? The two images I like to use that help my own heart anticipate how the good news of Jesus Christ should land upon our heart one of them is when, uh, if you remember what it feels like, maybe, I hope I'm not the only one who has this memory, but remember what it feels like. You wake up as a little boy and you're thinking, okay, what day is it? Do I have to go to school? And then it suddenly dawns on you that it's Christmas morning. Does anyone remember how that feels? You wake up and it's like, ah, oh, that like rush of joy. Another episode in my life when I think of that just un- unspeakable joy is when you're pursuing someone that you love and the first time you realize she loves me too. Okay, how does that feel, you know? It's like that pinnacle of joy in the human heart exploding upwards into joy, right? And this is what we believe about the gospel. If, if the gospel is, is a, a good news message, a happy news message that the God who made our world has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ to draw us back to himself and to set all things right so that everything sad becomes untrue. And if you think through the emotional implications of that, you know, one of the ways you, you can know for sure that you're really getting it, it's really sinking down to your heart is when this thought comes. Can it really be that good? Because I don't believe we can exaggerate the happiness of the gospel. And it's helpful to see that when we're doing apologetics, to bring out the emotional implications. And this is a classical approach. The ancient philosophers spoke of the good, the true, and the beautiful. A lot of Christian philosophers, smart apologists, have talked about this, that we want people to see. We wanna help our non-Christian friends Who don't have the hope of Jesus to feel and experience the gospel as true but also as good and also as beautiful Blaise Pascal I won't read through this quote you see on the slide but basically what he's saying is hey when we're doing apologetics we're not doing it with robots you know Um, you have to factor in the psychological factor where kind of like in a relational conflict you can't just use arguments you have to try to be persuasive. He says, you have to start further back than just argumentation about its truthfulness and show its respectability and its desirability. He says, make good people wish it were true first, then show them that it is true. This is what I found so helpful in my own life. And I just wanna share three quick reasons why I think this is so important right now. You know, I was driving up from Ohio, where I minister Uh, Yesterday afternoon, I rented the car, driving up. Sometimes, maybe again, maybe this is just me, but sometimes if you're just around people, you know, traveling to new areas, observing people, you just get a feel for the culture. And it just feels as though there's a lot of pain right now, Uh, a lot of darkness, a lot of fear, a lot of anger there's a lot of people who need the hope of Jesus right now and it does seem to call for a little bit of a different approach in some ways for how we share about Jesus and defend our faith in Jesus when we're interfacing with people three things in particular I think of one is that there's so much disenchantment in our culture right now somebody once said that the greatest enemy for the apologist is not a brilliant counterargument. the greatest enemy is apathy so many are disillusioned and disenchanted so that they're kind of just not thinking about the questions you know and beauty helps us cut through the disenchantment and get to the heart. I've known a lot of people who've come to Christ in part from reading fiction like the Lord of the Rings or in part from the arts music for example how does that work well Beauty has this ability to cut through the distraction, the disenchantment, and awaken us to consider the ultimate questions of life. An apologist that I know was uh, giving talks at a university, and he said the first night he came with arguments for God, and it was just, it didn't meet, it didn't connect. The audience was unresponsive. And he said, the next night I came, and I just tried to show the absurdity of life without God. I tried to show the existential implications of here's what this means. Look down the road and see where this leads. And he said it completely changed the response and and it kind of pierced people to the heart. I think beauty can help us cut through that disenchantment. Second, and very much related to that, uh, our culture, we need beauty because there's such a distraction within our culture right now. In fact, I, I, maybe even we could say that's the greatest enemy for the apologist. is it's neither the brilliant counter argument uh, nor apathy. It's just that people are so busy, you know, um, there's constant noise, constant Clicks, constant people vying for our attention, constant entertainment, and so much of this can dull us to asking the deep questions. Another thing that Pascal said is that the sole cause of our unhappiness is that we don't know how to sit quietly in a room by ourselves. Now, when I first heard that quote, I thought, oh, he's exaggerating just to make a point. But more I thought about it, I thought he's really right because if we could slow down, we'd be forced to attend to the deep matters of the soul, the things really going on in our hearts, but so many in our culture, they're not asking the deep questions because they're bouncing from one thing to the next. And What we can do sometimes is fill our lives with distractions and diversions to the point that it uh, just causes us to not even be thinking about those deep questions of what does this life mean? And, What happens when it is over? A lot of the people around us are simply not even thinking about these questions. And beauty can be a tool to cut through that again. Thirdly and quickly, there's one other thing in our culture that I think calls for beauty, and that's the outrage and anger that is there. And a lot of times underneath that anger can be fear. But there's so much of this bubbling up outrage and seeming kind of an escalation of, of anger right now you can feel that on social media you can see that and in interacting with people I think beauty can help us come across as not just another angry voice you know not just another person making their truth claim but with a more winsome posture and also I think it can speak to the real questions people have a little bit better right now uh, an apologist I know was sharing with me that 20 years ago, when he would go to a university, he would get truth questions, like, does God exist, or um, is the Bible true, and he was sharing that now he, he really gets a different set of questions. He gets more goodness questions, like, is the church intolerant, and are Christians homophobic, and questions like this, and that seems like it's representative of the culture as a whole. And so if we just are hammering away with truth and argumentation, we're actually not hitting those deepest, central, animating concerns within our culture that are bubbling up. People want to know, not just is it true, but is it good? Is it beautiful? Can I give my life to it? And I just think of, you know, before we move on, I'll just share, you know, I, I, I live in Ohio, and I love looking up at the stars at night as it's a rural area, so you can see a lot more stars. There's not as many competing lights, you know. Uh, Probably similar to some places around here, but maybe even more so, it's very rural there. And, uh, you know, so lately, because I I get convicted about how distracted I am by social media. I mean, honestly, it's easy to get pulled into it. So I've just been trying to be disciplined to not be looking at a screen so much. You know, in the olden days, people would stare at the stars at night, and and we just stare at our, our screens all the time, you know. And uh, especially if you live in in a city, you just hardly ever see the stars. So I go out at night and I look up at the stars and I just think about, think about how many people in our culture are going through their life without any sense of meaning or hope. They feel in their hearts a deep sense of despair. They don't know the hope that we do have in Jesus Christ. And uh, I think of young people I know, friends of mine, they're, uh, they would go out at night and look up at the stars, and you know, maybe they've been too busy. Maybe they're an agnostic, and they're not sure what is the meaning of life, and is there a God, and what is this all for? What are we all doing here? You know? And maybe they're too distracted to think about that during the day because they're busy, but at night they go out and they look up at the stars. And if you ever just try to just take it all in, sometimes I... Maybe this is weird, but I love to just go out there and just, as long as I can, just try to absorb what I'm looking at, you know, just the immensity of it, the beauty of it. And at night, if you, uh, so picture this young man going out at night doing this and the, the wind is rustling through the leaves and the trees. And as you're outside in the beauty of nature, this longing is awakened in his heart to just, you know, it's this longing for something you can't even put into words. Have you ever felt this this longing for something more than what is in this world, this longing for transcendence and for joy and for something beyond? Well, so many people in our culture don't know about the hope of Jesus that is the answer to that longing, that fulfills that longing like that character in Lord of the Rings experienced to this overflow of joy. And it's happy to think that we are entrusted with the opportunity to share that with them. And I just think that, Uh, Drawing attention to its beauty is one powerful way to do that right now. So here's what we'll do this morning. Uh, We're going to take five features of the world that we live in, okay? Some of these will seem odd, but you'll see where we're going as we get into them. We'll talk about justice, love, math, music, and hope. And what we're going to do is we're going to consider each through two options, this framework of on the one hand. Christianity, and on the other hand, what we'll call naturalism. When you hear the word naturalism, just think nature only. Naturalism is the view that there's nothing beyond physical nature. There's no God, there's no heaven, there's no soul, okay? It's a common view in our culture, and it's on the rise. And what we're going to see is um, Christianity is a more plausible story to explain these different features of our world, but it's also just a better story. It's a better intellectual framework, but it's also a better emotional framework that you can actually live with and come to terms with in the way you treat people, in the way that you live your life. So let's dive in and we'll go fast upon these. And I'm excited to work through each of these. There's each of them is uh, uh, its own unique kind of little arrow pointing us up to the one we know in Jesus, the Lord God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. First, justice. This is another buzzword in our culture right now, and lots of uh, debate and angst about what is justice and what is injustice, but nobody needs to be convinced that justice is important. Nobody needs to be uh, taught that there's a longing in the human heart for justice. We all know that sense of and if you've ever been mistreated, we know this terrible feeling of darkness and anguish until justice is restored and there's harmony. And one of the ways you see that is in movies. Movies if you stop and think about it are kind of telling the same story over and over. It's good and evil, right? This just kind of dawned upon me a few years ago and it's suddenly it's so common and instinctive that we just take it for granted. But it's actually kind of amazing when you think about it that in every movie it's the same plot line. Good and evil are struggling. Good is getting defeated and beaten up by evil for most of the story. And then usually, almost all the time, good wins in the end. The good guys beat the bad guys. Every now and again you'll find a movie. Maybe some of you are thinking of an exception right now. I'm thinking of one in my mind. But you can find some of those movies where the, the good guys don't win in the end. And one of the things that's interesting is how unsatisfying that is. And you think that just doesn't feel right you know there should be justice at the end of the story and this is this longing deep within the human heart another way you can see this is the way our culture is growing more polarized and more tribal and more outraged and uh, there's a, uh, a lot of people who thought that as we become more secular we'll become more tolerant but that's not happening uh, the more secular we get, the more there's an awareness of a deep longing for justice in the human heart that does not go away. There's a secular social psychologist named Jonathan Haidt who's written a great deal about this. It's actually a really helpful book called The Righteous Mind. If you want to understand, I think the subtitle is why, we, why good people are divided on politics and religion. It's a fa- and it's by a secular person, but he's exposing. He's doing things that are actually really helpful in this context to think about, because he's talking about the conscience and this deep, hardwired sense of justice that's in the human heart. At one point, he says human nature is not just intrinsically moral, it's also intrinsically moralistic and judgmental. An obsession with righteousness, leading inevitably to self righteousness, is the normal human condition. And so it raises the question of kind of where does this longing for justice come from and so we can just put it through our our framework of our two options that we would look through Uh, the first option is within naturalism now there's lots of people today and you you may have heard of the phrase of the new atheists who want to try to find some way to have an objective morality to have a real stable uh, identification of justice apart from God. But one of the things that's interesting is how rare that is within historic atheism. Almost all of the older atheists, I think, were a bit more honest and thoroughgoing in showing the implications, the emotional implications too, of atheism. There's an older atheist named Friedrich Nietzsche who has this famous passage where he's saying the loss of God means total chaos. He says, in the absence of God, it's as though someone's taken a sponge to wipe away the horizon, or someone has unchained earth from its orbit around the sun. He says at one point, in the absence of God, is there anything that is still up or down? It's like, you know, total chaos. And if you think through, okay, so who's right? The older atheists or the newer atheists? If you think it through, In a naturalistic worldview it really does seem like the older atheists are right. It's hard to find any way to have an objective justice that is a real justice that's not just something that we make up. One of the reasons for that is in a naturalistic worldview everything about us is explained by evolution. So the conscience is in our heart simply because it helped our animal ancestors survive. Everything about us, including our sense of right and wrong and our longing for justice, comes from the evolutionary. It's just a spin-off or a byproduct of evolution. It helped animals pass on their genes, and that's why it's in us. Now, if you really think that through, it's pretty devastating. It means in in the first place that our sense of justice is an illusion. It's kind of our brains tricking us. There is nothing out there that is transcendent or fixed that justice refers to. It's just a survival mechanism. It also means that justice is arbitrary. We could have evolved such that we'd have a completely different uh, set of moral intuitions. And I won't read the quotes that I have up here about this because they get kind of disgusting actually. It's kind of gross to think about. There's all these people saying, you know, imagine we had evolved like this animal or like that insect. And our moral intuitions would be exactly the opposite of what they are right now. And it is pretty devastating to think about that. It means that it's an illusion and it means no happy ending is coming. In a naturalistic worldview, there will be no final justice. Okay, so that's one. We're looking down the road here with these two options. That's naturalism. Now look down the road at Christianity. If Christianity is true, then the conscience is not a deception. It's not tricking us. It's a clue about what reality is really like. And Tolkien talks about how because we're made in the image of God and God is a just God, this is why we tell stories that are patterned after the great story that we're all a part of. This is why we, all of our stories have good and evil and a happy ending, because that's what's happening in our world. If Christianity is true, there will be a happy ending. Everything sad will come untrue. There will be final justice. If you think about it like this, think about the feeling you get when you're watching your favorite movie, okay? Uh, That sense of resolution and rightness at the end. If naturalism is true, that feeling is just your brain tricking you. If Christianity is true, that feeling is a little clue into what is going to happen in our world one day. You can see the emotional implications of these two are infinite. I don't think we can exaggerate them. All right, these next few will be quick. We'll go fast. Number two is love. Now, I'll start this section with a a confession here. I'm gonna reference the movie Frozen 2, the great theological masterpiece, Frozen (laughs) 2, okay? Now, my excuse for, I've seen this movie many times. I won't tell you how many, but my excuse is, I have four young kids, and I'm just trying to connect with my daughter, you know? that's um, we, so we have, four, By the way, we have our fifth child is due in eight days, so if you see me check my phone and leave suddenly, it's not you, okay? <laughs> but I actually love the music in this movie. It's actually pretty deep. There's this one song called Do the Next Right Thing. It's pretty poignant. It's talking about working through depression and keep going through the dark, you know? And right before this, the, the, the snowman, Olaf, uh, is melting away and he says to the character who sings this song, hey, Anna, I just thought of one thing that is permanent. And she says, what's that? And he says, love. Love. And when you think about that, that sentiment is maybe, you know, it's again, it's like good versus evil. It's so common, we just take it for granted. How many songs has this idea been expressed in? Maybe it's the most common theme in all of songs. I will love you forever, right? Well, we just pause, that's all really we need to get into this just right there because already you can just say well is love permanent and again we put it through our paradigm and it's helpful to look down the road look down to the end of the tunnel and see the emotional implications of these different worldviews and in naturalism there's no sense in which love is permanent love is just like the conscience it's an illusion fobbed off on us by the evolutionary process the reason we feel the way we do about our kids Our parents our spouses our friends is because it helped animals survive and there's nothing more to it than that and if you really think that through it is pretty devastating okay now consider the opposite if the Christian gospel is true love is the core reality love has always been here it will always remain love is the reason we're all here this world is the product uh, the creation of an overflow of love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Love's always been reverberating between the persons of the Godhead. First John 4.8 even says God is love. In the next slide you can kinda of just sum it up if you can see that or not. Uh, in naturalism love is accidental. It might not have ever come about. You could have had a universe where love never existed. It's biological. As soon as animals go, love goes. And it's functional, it's just to help people survive, so it's kind of tricking you. In theism, if, if, if the Trinity exists, exists, love is essential, it's at the core of reality. It's spiritual, it's not just in our brains, and it's purposeful, in fact it's the purpose of everything. It's why we're here and it explains where everything is headed. One way to summarize the difference is like this, in naturalism death is stronger than love. I hope i'm saying this right yes death is stronger than love in christianity love is stronger than death i think it helps to draw that out and to feel the what's at stake emotionally existentially you know looking down the road at these two options and seeing not only is the gospel a a more plausible story it's just a better story okay number three we're going to talk about math now some of you might say math as beautiful And I feel that, I mean, so I don't want to offend any math teachers here, but math was not my favorite subject growing up. But in the context of researching for my book on this, I started reading the philosophy of math. And I was absolutely amazed because what all these top philosophers of math are wrestling with even though many of them most of them are not Christians or theists who believe in God is the mysterious nature of math both in how permanent it is and how useful it is and everyone's wrestling with this you know why does math have this kind of mysterious permanence to it a way you can think of it is like this if our physical universe were to collapse into non-existence would 2 plus 3 still equal 5? Well, most people think is yes. It just seems like, well, what else could 2 plus 3 ever equal other than 5? And it's, it seems like a necessary truth, which means it has to be true in every possible world that could ever exist. It seems like an eternal truth, something that's always been true, must always be true. And in a naturalistic worldview, people are really wrestling with that. They're saying, you know, doing math feels like being an archaeologist, not an architect. It feels like you're discovering truth, not just making it up. One person, one of these philosophers of math talks about doing math feels like I'm reading a book somebody wrote. It's like this sense of there's truth out there, you know. He talks about it like an invisible castle that we can access. It's it's real, it's durable, and it works. It applies to our universe so exactly. Uh, If you want to get more into this, because we won't go into it too much right now, you can read this article that was written way back in 1960 by Eugene Wigner, again, not a believer. He said, the enormous usefulness of mathematics in the natural sciences is something bordering on the mysterious. There's no rational explanation for it. And again, emotionally it hits me too, you think of the contrast. Think of this, that if God exists. Math is not at all surprising. Uh, You'd expect there to be eternal truths if there is an eternal mind. And it's a happy thought to think that when you're doing math or when any intellectual uh, discovery you make, you're simply thinking God's thoughts after him. It's actually a lot less lonely vision of the universe. All right, if you didn't like math, hopefully you'll come back for music. This is my favorite one. This is my favorite way to talk about God. I've watched lots of debates between atheists and theists and one of the, if there's one argument that you can usually, more, more than any other argument that will ever get a concession from the other side it's these aesthetic arguments or arguments from beauty. And I've heard more than one atheist say, you know, I don't believe in God, but sometimes when I'm listening to Beethoven, I have my doubts. Or some will say, you too, Beethoven, you know, take your pick on what kind of music it is. but music has that power it, it kind of raises this sense of transcendence and you're wondering where does this come from and again you get into the literature on this and you realize all of the top philosophers are wrestling with this sense of mysteriousness that music conveys the sense of transcendence and that music has the ability to convey meaning in ways that are really hard to know how that works and why that works so consistently. Music seems to have a meaning to it. It can be interpreted, it can convey emotions and everybody's struggling with this. And a lot of people, you know, they may not find the rational argument convincing, but still there's this wonder when you feel the transcendence that comes across through music you just wonder well maybe there's something more you know Steve Jobs after he heard Yo-Yo Ma play his beautiful cello said you can read this basically that's the best argument for God I've ever heard I've heard more than one person say that Now again, you just run it through your paradigm, okay? So uh, on naturalism, music is like that because of evolution. It intersects with things in our brain that helped our animal ancestors survive. So that's why music conveys transcendence. It's tricking our brain. Um, It's also arbitrary. We could have evolved such that music would just be white noise. In, In a way, you could say music is a distraction from reality because reality is chaotic for naturalism. Music is very orderly. For Christianity this is absolutely amazing to think about. There's an old tradition of thought that says music is is a language. It's the way God created the world. And they get this from Job 38 where the angels are singing at creation. And you can read about this. And even in the Lord of the Rings, the creation account in Lord of the Rings has these angel-like creatures singing the world into being. And as their harmony goes out, it creates the world. So we can think of the difference here in terms of a metaphor. For naturalism, music is like an opiate or painkiller to a dying person. It's pleasant because it's a distraction from what reality is really like. But for Christianity, music is like a window to an imprisoned person. It's pleasant because it's a little clue that there might be more out there. You know, think of the way beautiful music makes you feel and kind of wonder and long and feel nostalgic. Uh, Imagine a a person in prison who's been in prison his whole life. He's never seen waterfalls. He's never seen the sunset. He's never seen trees. But he has a window and he can look up and see the sky and hear the birds and and that enables him to wonder, maybe there's more out there, you know? That's what music is. If Christianity is true, it's a little communication of the glory of God. It's a little whisper saying, there's a world beyond this world. I think it's helpful to help people to feel that. All right, finishing off and briefly, hope. Hope may be the most important thing in all of life. That's why it breaks my heart with compassion thinking of people right now who feel hopeless. Now I wanna mention the movie, The Shawshank Redemption. My policy at my church is if the movie is 20 years old, I'm allowed to give spoilers. So forgive me if you have never seen this movie you'll just have to have patience with me but there's a character named Andy in the Shawshank Redemption who's trying to find hope in a seemingly hopeless situation and it really presents the choice the fundamental choice of life pretty poignantly with the phrase get busy living or get busy dying well he chooses hope he chooses life and in the context of that choice he says hope is a good thing maybe the best thing and no good thing ever dies Every heart knows how to relate to that. Everyone knows how the difference hope makes in your life. But again, think about it through your framework. In naturalism, it's not true that hope will never die. It will. All you have to do is wait long enough and there will be no one around to do any hoping. In fact, not only every individual human life, but all of human civilization collectively will have no ultimate consequence. The universe will wind down, all will come to nothing. It really is dark and it helps to, f- to see that when we're seeing this contrast. I mean, if you wanna really feel it deep in your heart, imagine you're in the hospital with a friend and you just have five minutes left with them and naturalism is true. What can you even say, you know? And that's why it breaks my heart with compassion, thinking of people in our culture who don't have hope. How can we live without hope? But if Christianity is true, looking the other way and finishing off, Not only do we have a hope, we have the best possible hope, the best imaginable hope, because our hope is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, when Jesus rose from the dead, he did not lose his scars. When we get to heaven and hug Jesus, we will be able to see the nail holes in his wrists. Resurrection hope does not just undo suffering, Resurrection hope reverses suffering. It, it brings it to greater glory and joy. And here's the amazing thing that we can set our hearts upon this morning is that if you are in Christ, if you've turned away from sin and placed your faith in Christ and surrendered your life to him, that hope is yours. The suffering of your life also will turn to glory and joy as you follow Jesus throughout this world. Tim Keller puts it like this, You can read this on the the screen. Resurrection means every horrible thing that has ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but in some way make the eventual glory and joy even greater. So what I want us to do to finish is a kind of thought experiment. And if you just kind of enter into this with me, if you want to close your eyes, if that helps you, you can feel free to do that or you can just keep them open. But I just want you to think back on and remember a moment of deep happiness in your life. Maybe it was a time, a childhood memory, or maybe when you accomplished a dream or when you reconciled with a friend or something that just filled your heart with joy. Maybe you thought of it when we referenced that scene in the Lord of the Rings earlier. And just imagine what it will feel like if this is true and if you knew this deep in your heart that that feeling of happiness is just the first installment of a final, settled happiness that you will know forever and ever and ever. That one day when you get to heaven, somehow the joy of heaven has this paradox. It's infinite yet ever-increasing. Your joy will be full the first moment you're there, but it will continue to explode upwards more and more and more joy for all of eternity, and the the suffering of this life will not simply be ended. It will somehow be turned to joy. I like to say heaven will not only end your pain, heaven will mend your pain. The difference between these two is infinite, and if Christianity is true, that is the hope that we have. It's the best hope imaginable. And it's a hope that is worth giving everything in our lives to. It's a hope that is worth sharing with our friends who desperately need the hope of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you today before we finish. Father, thank you so much for the chance we have to set our hearts upon this hope afresh. We need that Sunday by Sunday and sometimes moment by moment. And so I pray for each of my friends here. I pray for anyone who is personally experiencing doubts or struggles in their faith. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would communicate your love to that person, that they would know that you love them, you care for them, you are with them, you are near. May they know your reality in the depth of their heart. Lord, for anyone who has come to our minds, as we've been reflecting upon this, that we are aware of needs the hope of Jesus Christ, we pray you'd work in their life to draw them to yourself And give us, Lord, the courage to look for that open door, to share the hope that we have. And Father, I pray for each of us here that our hearts would be full of joy this morning. How can we consider what you've done for us, Jesus, and not be moved to joy? Thank you from the bottom of our hearts, Jesus, for you, what you have done for us. May we just fall on our faces before you and, and give our lives, spend our lives serving you and, and worshiping you in response. We pray in your mighty and precious name. Amen.
0: Thank you, Dr. Ortland. Uh, I encourage you. Truth Unites is the YouTube channel. There's a uh so much there's a wealth of resources there i encourage you to check it out there's this type of stuff and a whole host of other things you know it's 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 funny um in first service he mentioned like you know at my my church i quote lord of the rings a lot and i can get away with it more here and i'm going bro until you start talking about the silmarillion and Eluvitar singing creation into existence from the holy ones you ain't and then later in the sermon he paralleled job and the reference was to what I had. I kid you not. I thought that as a joke in my head, and then you did it later. <laughs> so it's like uh, we're we're on the same we're on the same page, man. <laughs> the issue of beauty is it's, it, this is truly one of the great issues. There is not an account for it, and every single human being has an experience with it. There is a place from where the beauty comes from. There is a source. To the beauty. Every fleeting, fragment, piece of beauty that you experience in your life comes from a place. There is a source. There is a being at the center of all reality who is beautiful beyond measure. His beauty has no edges. It has no end. And it is our joy and privilege to serve that great king. And so may you leave here knowing that our King is powerful. He is loving. He is gracious. And He Himself is beauty beyond measure. If you would like prayer for anything, our prayer team will be up here as we close. As always, our offering baskets are in the back. And just go today. Feel encouraged. The Christian understanding of beauty is not only its not only true the Christian understanding of beauty is actually beautiful itself. It is the greatest story ever told, and it is the most beautiful story ever told. So walk humbly before your King, beautiful beyond measure, in the name of Jesus, empowered by His Spirit.